For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello. Have you been keeping up with all the sustainable fashion news? I feel like there's been so much more of it than usual. When I first worked in the space, it was very niche. Now it's like everywhere. So I've collated a few of the headlines I've noticed over the past few weeks. France is to pay people to repair their stuff as of October. Did you see that one? That's good. Fashion Revolution's latest Transparency Index reveals that while just over half of the 250 biggest brands they survey publish their tier one supplier lists, which is good, 99% don't disclose how many workers receive a living wage, which is obviously bad. And surprise, surprise, next to no brands disclose commitments around degrowth. Although, <laughs> Business of Fashion is reporting a trend for reductionism, as formerly fashiony types pledge to stop shopping, at least not so much. They're still buying stuff, just not as much. I'm not sure about this one, it's a big story. Shein was in the news for an influencer trip turned PR debacle with a stage-managed walk around a factory in Guangzhou. And one YouTuber calling herself an investigative journalist when she really isn't, making a reel saying she's excited and impressed to see the working conditions. And there's another one who was like, oh, I don't know why you talk about sweatshops. We were the ones sweating in the heat. Ha ha ha. Oh, my God. Cue mega backlash. Interesting. Social media erupted over this and really called them out for greenwashing. But it actually spread to all sort of mainstream news outlets. I was even asked to comment on this on Australian radio. So it just shows how much interest there is in ultra fast fashion and this idea that we're being lied to. Meanwhile, Timu has become the number one shopping app in the US, so surpassing Shein, which may well be news to you. Had you ever heard of Timu before this year? I hadn't. Anyway, this month there's been loads of headlines pitching them against Shein. Apparently one of them thinks the other one's trying to stop its suppliers from doing business with them or something. Who cares? They're both about insane volume. I think Timu's algorithm, by the way, needs some work. I just had a look on the site and searched for Barbie core just to see what it threw up. And I got shown a load of frumpy paisley things that weren't even pink, but they did cost $11. So to my mind, this is just more of the sheet insane, destined to end up in landfill. Or maybe Marley. A new investigation by Changing Markets followed pieces of used clothing donated at stores in Europe by sewing electronic tags into the linings and tracking them with Apple's Find My Phone app. This was just in the Times, literally the, on the weekend. So five out of 21 garments were dealt with in the same continents, and they followed them over months, right? Only one was resold in the country it was donated in. And of the others... They pass through four time zones across three continents. There's one sports top they followed that ended up in a second-hand market in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And then there's a skirt that they followed that just disappeared somewhere in Mali. All of which goes to show the complexity of the global trade in second-hand clothing. And, you know, we've covered this on the podcast before. Listen to the episode with Liz Ricketts from the Orr Foundation talking about waste colonialism. More business news. Gabriella Hurst, who is widely revered as a poster woman for sustainable luxury, has stepped down from her role at Chloe. But don't worry, not before she co-designed a collection for Angelina Jolie's mysterious Atelier project, which in May announced its imminent launch on Instagram and said that it aims to join others in their effort to democratise the fashion industry, allowing customers to have access to a collective of emerging designers and master artisans. And they promised an inclusive online resource for finding garment makers, making use of curated dead stock and vintage materials to create one-of-a-kind pieces that embody personal creativity and purpose. Well, that sounds awesome. And look, we haven't seen it yet, so maybe that is what it will do. But to me, that the first collection is with Chloe makes no sense of that. I just don't think that under any stretch of the imagination you can call a luxury brand like Chloe democratic. Not when a denim jacket from the latest collection costs 2,500 bucks. I found that on Netaporte. Come on. But I tell you this because it matters how we describe stuff. When we exaggerate 
or pair certain concepts with very different realities, we risk losing a trust. Which brings us to today's topic, and indeed another sustainable fashion headline maker. The UN wants fashion to do a better job communicating around sustainability. My guest is Rachel Arthur. She is a brilliant sustainability communicator and someone I've got heaps of respect for. I've done a few things with her over the years in the UK. And these days, she's an advocacy lead on sustainable fashion at the UN Environment Programme. And Rachel authored a new UN sustainable fashion communication playbook. As you'll hear, they did a bunch of consultation with more than 100 different voices around the world. It came out of a commitment that UNEP and UN Climate made at the COP26 in Glasgow, basically trying to get the fashion industry aligned behind the Paris Agreement goals. Now, it's fantastic to have Rachel on the show to decode this new guide. It's a free resource available to anyone who's interested, and I reckon it's really valuable. It gets to grips with all the stuff that you need to know from definitions, you know, what exactly is sustainable fashion, and even looking at tough stuff around degrowth, for example, like how can brands talk about that? Don't forget to check the show notes for all the links. We'll also put a link to the playbook in the show description here. And please do tell us what you think. You can find Rachel on Instagram at Rachel underscore Arthur. And I'm at Mrs. Press and at the wardrobe crisis, as you know. All right, let's sit down with Rachel Arthur. It's very weird being on the other side. <laughs> You're being recorded. <laughs> How exciting. Rachel Arthur, welcome to the Water Crisis podcast. We're in your kitchen. We are. Thank you very much for having me. You just said this is very weird being on the other side because actually last time we did this, it was reversed. It was. You were interviewing me for a podcast. I was, I was <laughs> way back when. I know this is very strange being the other way around. At that time, you were doing a project for Google, a sustainability thing with WWF yes. and Stella and Stella McCartney. What was yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Um, it was a platform that was looking at the role of data at the raw material stage, and it's now owned by Textile Exchange. Actually, you've had a very varied career. You've been a journalist. Yeah, we're really similar. It's weird. We've had journalism <laughs> backgrounds, but then you spent some time at the Trend Forecasters WGSN, right? Yes, I did. Yeah. Eight years of my career was there. That's where I started, actually. What did it Um, teach you? I was just writing about trend forecasting. I think it's a fascinating thing. Yeah, it is a really fascinating thing. I mean, as I said, I started my career there and I was on a news desk. So I think initially it taught me the sort of fundamentals of news journalism, which was really, really helpful. Actually, but so trend forecasters, which are vast, by the way, especially at that level, they have armies of journalists who are basically researching and trying to find the latest news stories to figure out what's coming next. Exactly. It's very interesting. It is really interesting. And I think when I stop and think about what it taught me beyond just sort of learning about how to write... What it really taught me was how to interpret signals of change. And that, you know, is still something that obviously you do today, I do today, is fundamental to the role, isn't it? And um, that is so central to being a journalist, but particularly in a trend forecasting space where what you're trying to watch is what's coming next. Mm -hmm. And how can I understand what's coming next and interpret it and explain it to other people? So that, I think, was my foundation in this industry really. We're having this conversation with you wearing your UN Environment Programme hat. You're an advocacy lead on sustainable fashion. How did you get into the sustainability part? Because back when you were starting out this was not a conversation. No it wasn't. I mean when I look back at my journalism in early days which you know is coming up 20 years ago there was bits of writing about sustainability. Didn't you write luxury for Wired? I worked with Wired in their consultancy team, actually, with some of their luxury and retail clients. Early on with WGSN days, it was very much about, you know, those signals of change were around digital and e-commerce. You know, it was around how the industry was embracing and trying to understand that level of transformation. Before anyone had a website. Before anyone had a website. It used to be news. We used to get press releases saying somebody is, you know, launching a website or, you know, press release, they're live streaming their fashion show. And obviously all of that is just so normal today. It's, It's bizarre. But again, my point about interpreting signals of change, I think that has been my red thread. And what brought me to sustainability was that if you were trying to understand the way that the industry is progressing, where it's moving, what we need to be focused on, how we continue to be successful and create value as an industry, sustainability obviously very rapidly became the the core focus. So I I probably transitioned into that fully eight years ago-ish, but there was 
bits of it before that as well, kind of starting to, to percolate and come into talking about trends. You know, it was a trend that industries needed to be thinking about sustainability. Arguably, it still is. <laughs> I was going to say, how do you think it's changed now? I mean, before we press record, we were talking about a conference that we both just attended in Copenhagen, where you were on stage launching this new sustainable fashion communications playbook. So in terms of how it's evolved, I would say that what's exciting and what's very evident when you go to an event like Copenhagen or when any of the sort of industry trade shows or conferences or just even discussions, there are much wider stakeholders now there. It's grown so much as a selling point in fashion, which is a real positive in many ways. But of course, with that comes this fact that from a marketing viewpoint, your entry point to sustainability has been oh, this can help us sell more product, which is inherently against the very notion of what we're trying to achieve Mm. with our goals around sustainability. So we launched something called the Sustainable Fashion Communication Playbook, um, which is a guide for consumer-facing communicators in the global fashion industry to start thinking about how to align everything they do, so everything that's put out in the world that is a form of communication to sustainability targets. Why do you think we have such a need for it or such a problem around the way we communicate and the language around sustainable fashion? I mean, there are so many different layers. I think part of the thing is that it's very vague. So, you know, when we say the word sustainability, responsible, eco-conscious, eco-friendly, green, what do any of those words mean? You and I understand them, although arguably we probably have different definitions of them. But your average person on the street that's, you know, shopping in London as we're sat today, I imagine they have no clue, definitely not how to differentiate them. That's a big deal because we're throwing these words around left, right and centre and saying that this is a positive thing, you know, almost empowering people to say, you care about sustainability now, you know there's a climate crisis happening. Here, shop this way. Let me put all of these words in front of you and make you believe that therefore I'm doing a good thing. And that is messy. That is tricky. So the the problem we've got is that, yeah, it's vague. That makes it confusing. And people are getting caught up in that and not really understanding what's right and what's wrong from it. And I think we have to remember here that actually what we're talking about is very technical. It is about science. Anything we say in there therefore needs to be about evidence. And we're not seeing enough of that in this industry. It's very, very hard to do. And that's been the biggest challenge. It hasn't been regulated until it's coming now. So people have been getting away with it. And now we're at a point where people are realising it's not okay. And we're starting to be, you know, seeing people, brands, businesses being called out on it. Almost all of inaccurate or misleading or confusing communications around sustainability comes from a place of it's either by accident or people are just not confident to do it effectively. I don't think it comes from a malicious place or it's purposefully misleading. I don't think people are sitting there going, let's hoodwink these customers. I actually just think that people are really, really confused. I agree. I really agree. I think mostly, there is apart from mostly the, apart from the really from, malevolent ones, but mostly I really think there's just a lack of yeah. confidence. But also that it's been acceptable. It's been fine to throw labels on things, you know, like, yes, this is slightly better than the rest of our collection. So we can call it that it's something, you know, sustainable, responsible, et cetera, et cetera. So no, I don't think it is malicious in the main, but I do think that people in communication roles by the very nature of that job role are very used to exaggerating um and that's that's risky in this space i mean maybe we should dial it back and think about who is communicating about sustainable fashion because certainly it's journalists but it's also brands and it's marketers and when you talk about marketers i mean that sounds like a sort of nebulous thing or it's an agency or who knows what it actually generally is is an entry-level young woman in an office trying to produce a press release to market a new product Yeah, a press release or even the person that's writing the copy that goes with the product on the editorial page, somebody that's posting things on social media. Oh, yeah. You know, so it's it's all of those marketing roles in-house. I'd say that's our largest audience. These people doing these jobs most likely have not been trained in 
sustainable fashion journalism, which is only a new thing. No, I imagine the majority, absolutely not. And I hope that there's more and more of them that will start to be, but certainly not at at this stage. And probably even more importantly, their bosses definitely won't have been. So I think they haven't got a clue either. Yeah, they they don't have a clue. (laughs) No. But then one of the points that we actually make in the playbook that I think is really important is that how much education do they actually need? Because that, to me, has been an excuse for a really long time as to why things are not as they should be in the way that we communicate about sustainability. Saying, oh, there's a massive education gap. Yes, there is, of course. It's it's really important that we feel that. But it's not the only thing. And the, the reason that I say that is because we do have incredible sustainability experts in a lot of these businesses. They are deep technical experts on, on you know, on all fronts and obviously within that role growing. So, and that to me, is the person that the communication teams need to be able to go to. That's who they need to draw the expertise from. It's not their responsibility to know the technical internets of it, but they need to make sure that what they're being told is obviously accurate and evidence-based and everything else. What they bring is a totally different skill set that is missing from sustainability, which is about how do we get consumers to engage with this in a way that we haven't really seen before and that skill already exists that's what they do day in day out they make people fall in love with things and that's what we want them to do more with sustainability so my argument is that I think a lot of the skills already there we just need them to redirect it to this side of things I actually love that also you've got to think about all those other job roles that surrounds it as well that it's also communication so the image makers you know the photographers the stylists the ones that are creating these incredible videos for everything that goes on social media now the beautiful visuals that you know are essentially the sort of most obvious side of what this industry represents and those people aren't in these sustainability conversations at all. As you mentioned, UNEP has just launched a guide to getting this language right, the Sustainable Fashion Communication Playbook. So what form does it take? And also, as we're on words here, what even is a playbook? Yes, okay, that's a fair point. Um, So what is a playbook? So for us, it's a practical guide. I think that's probably the easiest way of explaining it, that it is very, very clear framework or tool, if you will, that says, this is all the information you need to know about this. This is why it's important. And here is some ways, the how of going about changing it. So I like to think of it actually as a bit of a blueprint of what good looks like, which is to say that, that it is the sort of the most best-in-class example of what you should be doing. What form does it take? I mean, first of all, it's a monster. It is. How many pages is it? 102. (laughs) You can download it for free, whoever you are, wherever you are, and use this as essentially a democratic free tool that can help you get to grips with this, whether your business is small. Yeah, that's good. I mean, for for everyone, and that was very much the intention. UNEP does so much work around the world in regions with SMEs. So it needs to be as applicable to them as it obviously does to these giant organisations that obviously the fashion industry tends to focus on and talk about. All right, definitions. What is the UNEP definition of sustainable fashion? Okay, so overall, we try and define it as striking a balance between the economic, social and environmental side of things so all of those three considerations together sometimes we might say ethical fashion means the social side yes indeed but you're saying no we've got to make sure that you've plugged it's in got the to social be all of it. yeah it's got to be what about um, animals yeah and then so in the playbook actually and you had obviously an amazing conversation with emma recently from collective fashion justice about animal welfare and she was one of our peer reviewers and i'm so pleased she was because you know, we mentioned animals in the copy, but she was like, we're not mentioning it enough. It needs to be in there more. And so we very clearly say in the document now, when we're talking about environmental and social, animals are fundamentally part of that consideration. As an aside, I'll just tell you, dear listener, that Emma Huckinson was at the Global Fashion Summit in Copenhagen. And I said, what are you doing here? And she said, I'm counting the amount of times animals are raised <laughs> in the discussions on the stage. And I said, how's that going? And she said, end of day one, three. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So then I was like, I'm on day two. I'm going to say it eight times on stage. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> That's brilliant. So just to go back to the definition then, the, the longer version of that balance between those three considerations, more specifically the way that UNEP refers to it, and I'll read it, yeah. is that it's about being resource efficient and renewable resources based producing non-toxic, high-quality and affordable clothing, services and products while providing safe and secure livelihoods. Bit of a mouthful. Actually, very 
useful definition. Do you want Good. to just go over a couple of those things there just in explanation? Because this whole thing around safe and renewable resources is interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the resources side of things, you know, if you think about the way that the fashion sector is fundamentally operating today, it is about resource extraction in ways that, you know, are not renewable. And those virgin resources are the sort of fundamental side of this industry. It's the majority of obviously what we produce. Polluting water, using chemicals, not just extracting fossil fuels, all of those those things. things. All of them. It's taking up so much land. Mm. Yeah, every single element of that. What else? Um, I particularly like the idea that it has to be high quality and affordable. That's saying quite a lot because there's a lot of, um, you know, and this is probably a different podcast, um, but there is obviously a lot of conversation around how we make sustainable, not just an elitist, inaccessible side of the industry. And then also, of course, the safe and secure livelihoods, as you say, that social element has to be a part of this conversation. And when we talk about the work specifically we're doing on sustainable and circular textiles within UNEP, we talk about ensuring a just transition. Yeah. And and actually, this again is so vital because it's too easy for us to fall back on the focus on materials and forget mm. that people are making the materials too. So yeah. it's not enough just to be... And I, I think this is something brands are guilty of, that they make much of their circular product while only focusing on its material side and not on who made it. Yeah, absolutely. And also the other way around as well, that there's an argument that says, oh, well, we can't move too much into this space because people rely on the traditional jobs. And yeah, there is a, there's a huge conversation that is ongoing, obviously, around those job roles. But that's why we talk about a just transition, because we need it to change and we need to support those livelihoods. Just transition is a very UN phrase. Mm. Hakan Karosman is extremely lovely and academic on this. We'll share some links. What would you define it as? I think it's about ensuring that we bring people along in this change. You know, we can't leave anyone behind. That's another UN one, isn't it? Don't leave anyone behind. It but is. actually, it's so important. It's so important because at the end of the day, the majority of people that work in the garment manufacturing countries are the ones that are on the front line of the climate crisis. And it's so easy to forget that. You know, we we talk about, oh, you know, they're not paid enough and their livelihoods are affected by the way that we're operating now. And yes, that's fundamental, but it's getting worse. Mm. Um, and that's the side of it that I think we need to really focus on. We also talk about them without talking to them, to them. and bringing them along. I think in this work, and tell me if they were part of your panel, it's probably less relevant because if you're talking to communicators, I don't know if suppliers in the global south would have communication experts on their teams. I would imagine it would be minimal. But coming back to the conference that we were just at, there were so many conversations that were about suppliers, about farmers. I had one. (laughs) We really need to make sure that they're consulted and their voices are not just heard, but central, right? Yeah. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And Interestingly, actually, there's been quite a lot of interest in this work in the sense of thinking about how can suppliers use the insights around communication to help them communicate more so with their brands around change, which is interesting. So they are thinking about communication as well. So we're starting to explore what that might look like also. And it's also a failure of communication that leads to their exclusion to so many of these forums, isn't it? I yes. mean, on, on, yeah. on our part, as in our part, those who hold the power. Yeah, and that power dynamic is very interesting, yeah. isn't it? But yes, fundamentally. Who did you consult then in this process? Because this is millions of people. Actually, not millions. It's about 100 or not. I was one of them. But you really spoke to a very broad range of communicators and sustainability insiders, didn't you? Yeah, we did. So um, there are two elements to it. First of all, this is a partnership between UNEP and UN Climate Change. And specifically within UN Climate Change, the Fashion Industry Charter for Climate Action. So that charter has a group of signatories that are largely comprised of large brands and some suppliers and then supporting organisations. And they had a mandate very early on with the charter that they would do a piece of work that was looking at promoting wider climate action. So again, specifically looking at the consumer engagement piece and they would create a playbook. So UNEP was also doing something in the space and we, we, we started talking together about you know combining efforts, which is nice. So the consultancy was... First of all, with signatories, 
So with those organisations that are already part of the charter. Who's in the charter? All sorts of different brands, but from the likes of fast fashion, like H&M, sports, like Adidas, Nike, Puma, luxury, like Chanel, Kering. And then, as I said, suppliers and so forth as well. We also talked to a lot of journalists, academics. Yeah. So that's what we then brought in in addition. We made sure that we had representation from these other parts of the communication ecosystem, influencers in there as well. We wanted activists in there. We brought in some agencies, you know, so those that work in advertising, marketing, media agency, creative agency. And when you say brought in, tell us how that worked. So you had a lot of different forums. What did mm. you, did you say, did you ask them what the problems are? Did you ask them what the solutions are? What We did all of that. So we started by looking at, you know, the role of communication, how important it was, whether it was part of this conversation already, where the barriers were for it being so, what needed to change, what we wanted to change, what that could look like, what the challenges of doing so were, what other people we would need involved to help facilitate that change. It was incredibly informative in the sense of everybody brought something really different to the table. We also had lots of SMEs in there. That's the other thing to say. It wasn't just big brands. We wanted to ensure that we had some global representation. So we brought in some small businesses from around the world. And you'll see some of them as case studies in the document as well. Um, There's an amazing one from Indonesia called Sukasita, for instance. Um, They're doing incredible work with different artisans in local villages and communities across Indonesia drawing on insights from Indigenous wisdom in terms of the way that the products are created in the first instance. Mm. Um, You know, her work is beautiful, but also obviously the reason that we wanted somebody like that in the playbook is to talk about then the way that they communicate about it. So her whole thing is showing the consumer what that looks like, where it comes from, what the soil is, all the way through to obviously the finished product. I mean, it's the storytelling. We'll come back to that. But before we do, let's just talk about the urgency for this. Why now? So we're in what the UN calls a code red for humanity. It's an awful phrase. If it's an awful about phrase. words and communication. It's an awful phrase, but I think it wakes is, you up. It wakes you up, yeah. And when that one was released, what, a year ago? I remember reading it in the headlines and being like, Ooh. it was shocking. Yeah. But what it doesn't do, and I think is really important to talk about, is that it's another example of something that's really intangible. You know, so when we talk about 1.5 degrees or we talk about CO2 emissions, none of us can comprehend what that actually is. It's impossible to kind of grasp hold of it and say like, oh yeah, that's something that affects me and I understand what it looks like and I know then what I need to do to help change it and make it right. And also it's hard to interpret that as actually what the problems are really. But I do think we're starting to obviously see so much more of that, you know, wildfires, the floods, the heat waves that we're seeing in Europe. I mean, in the UK last year, as we're sitting in London, for the first time in my living memory, we had such hot weather last summer that our green spaces around us turned to dust. I I've mean, never seen dust. anything like it. Yeah. It was like desert-like, which we've, you know, we're known in England, rainy place, like greenery. There was no greenery. It was gone. I got married in the middle of a drought. I had a a very sort of straw-like wedding, which does look very nice and rustic in photographs, (laughs) but it was not what we were expecting whatsoever. That is real. And we're facing serious water scarcity again this year. It's already being being talked about in in a big way. I mean, it's July and it's green outside, but I don't imagine it's going to be for the rest of the summer. And I think that that was a wake up call. I mean, it doesn't affect our immediate livelihoods in our day to day. I mean, it it will for some people, but on the whole in London, it doesn't. But it is a wake up call to make us realise that it is affecting us. And also, obviously, it is affecting others even more significantly. Fashion industry has been very vocal in its goals around trying to tackle carbon emissions and the climate crisis. But then recently we've seen a spate of brands revise or abandon or admit they won't reach them. So there's this urgency, but then there's this, I want to say complacency, I'm not sure if it is, or if it's just inability to get there without... Yeah, maybe some reality as well. I mean, it's a really short window of time, you know, it's not very long until 2030, And at the end of the day, of course, it's hard because the industry is still growing. I mean, it's really still growing. And, you know, when we talk about why now is because I think the thing that gets me the most within all of this, whether I'm talking to the industry or I'm talking to friends, is this recognition that in the one, you know, in one breath, we can be talking about the way that it's affecting livelihoods around the world. And the next was just still continuing to shop in exactly the same way. And, you know, that volume of product as well and how just yeah, it's just so much stuff there's so much stuff you know whether it's a cheap dress to wear on a night out at weekend or you know a million pairs of sneakers and I always think when you and I talked about this originally and, and I must tell you it was super informative 
what you said to me is that we need to also think about not just the way that women shop, but men shop and the streetwear phenomenon and that side of things. And it's true. There's just so much product. There's so much product. And I think that side of things in terms of why the industry can't reach its goals in the timeframe we've got is because they're not willing to address just how much stuff they're pushing through continuously. And that's where I think communicators also have a role to play. Mm. Before we get on to talking about growth, let's just stick on what the playbook is seeking to achieve. A summary of aims at the start of the document acknowledges, I've got got it here, I'm going to read it out, the confusion over greenwashing that currently exists, as well as the cultural power the fashion industry has through storytelling. Yeah, I mean, so I think, first of all, the, the number one thing it's trying to achieve is a call to action for communicators to join us at this table. They're not here. We need those storytellers, right? They hold the key to so much of this. They are, I said on stage in Copenhagen, gatekeepers for aspiration and desire. So I'd say that's our number one thing is like bring these people to the table. Then there is a piece around greenwashing, as you say. So that misinformation side of things. That to me is table stakes though, that that like has to happen. I mean, it's going to have to happen because of regulation that's coming in. But that I think is the foundation layer that the industry already is aware of and working on. And if they're not, they should be. Mm. <laughs> but most sustainability professionals that we discuss this with, you know, they're, they're already sort of on that path. Because they know that consumer watchdogs in different countries have already been cracking down. Do you want to, before we get off this, just whip us through some of those greenwashing how to avoid it <laughs> tips that are in this document? The playbook is cut into four different sections. And the first section, lead with science, is the, the greenwashing or the you know reducing misinformation side of things. And it's broken down into tables of do's and don'ts. So very clear, pragmatic guidance around this is what you should do, and this is what you shouldn't do. So under lead with science is things like you should provide accurate, detailed, clear information. You should make sure that your claims are really specific and explicit. They need to be understood and interrogated. I love the word interrogated there. But you shouldn't or, or don't make assumptions or claims without evidence. And I love this one. Absence of evidence is not an excuse for greenwashing. You know, it's very easy for us to say and there wasn't enough information available. So I just put this on it anyway kind of thing. Saying, actually, no, that's that, that's not okay. Don't say it if you don't if you can't have prove it. the evidence. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Also, not just about it being evidence-based, that's, again, table stakes, has to be, but also make sure that the information shared is clear, concise, and easy to understand. And I think that's a really important part of greenwashing as well, because it's very easy to hide behind the complexity of the numbers and put it up in such a way that nobody can understand it. So they sort of just assume that, therefore, it must be good. But it's also difficult to make language inviting and storytell in a fashiony way yes, while being usually. very clear concise and techy yeah <laughs> and we talk about this idea of yeah bringing people into that and trying make it engaging you know? but i think that's where people fall down because they're trying to be engaging they're trying to say lean against this tree in the field and we'll yes. say everything's eco all right because that goal to be very clear and concise and straightforward which we need is kind of at odds with selling the dream. It is. And that is a real challenge. But that goes back to my point earlier that the skill sets are here that have been missing from the conversation, which is the creativity piece and it is the storytelling piece, which is to say, bring in that art of how to engage someone in a way that actually maintains that dream and redirects that dream to sustainability. But also don't sell a dream that is complete nonsense. Rachel, I know that you're not here talking about brands and that isn't appropriate for the UN, but I can say what I like. And I'm going to say this. Did you see the glorious Valentino Couture show? Because it was so beautiful. And then read Valentino's extremely silly comment about how they thought that the venue, which was a chateau, had been transformed. They said the Oak Couture show might re-signify this chateau into a forum for equality. <laughs> <laughs> What does that I even put mean? it on Instagram. It's so, it's so funny. I was like, you make beautiful clothes. They're beautiful. But someone in your comms department does need taking in hand because <laughs> oh, Couture in a Chateau cannot be a forum for equality. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't seen that. That's that anyway, excellent. Moving on. You just said the talent's already there. If we can bring them together with the expertise and specificity around sustainability 
technicalities. See, those words are not appealing. Let's talk then about... But fashion shows (laughs) are appealing. So it's interesting that you've brought that up because, you know, we only talk about fashion shows in the sense of what their carbon footprint is. We don't talk about the dream of fashion shows at all. And we should, because that's not in the sustainability conversation whatsoever. I mean, it's at odds with with it, which is part of the challenge, um, apart from maybe if it's <laughs> around then, a forum for So for how apology. do we do it then? How does the playbook suggest we bring in the storytelling and the dream? So one of the things we talk about is this idea of a brain print. And this is not my word at all. I like it. Um, I've never it's heard a great it before. Word. <laughs> so what this basically means is that we need to think about with everything that we put out in the world from a communication standpoint, what is the knock-on effect that it has on consumption? So how does it then impact the volume of product that gets sold? So if you think about something like a fashion show, this is a perfect example. It's not just the carbon footprint of the show. We don't need to just know, you know how many flights were taken to attend it, which obviously is incredibly negative. But we need to think about when that show takes place, what is the resulting volume of consumption directly that comes from it and indirectly? You know, so what is the knock-on effect for the amount of copycat brands um, or the amount of consumers that then say, I'm going to go and buy something that looks like what I just saw on that catwalk? But you couldn't quantify it. You could never quantify it. People have tried with certain elements of it. There's something called advertised emissions. It's done by an organisation in the UK called Purpose Disruptors, where they start to think around, as an advertising agency, if you are doing an ad for a car brand, it's not just about the carbon footprint that was taken up by the production of that advert, but actually the volume of cars that are sold as a result of it. So in the UK, the advertising industry adds an average 32% to the annual carbon footprint of every single person, is what it says. (laughs) It's terrible. It's huge. It's terrible. But we don't think about that. We just think, as said, like the production of that shoe, or indeed the production of that garment of clothing but what does that garment of clothing when it's portrayed and shown in a certain way then mean for the rest of the industry so someone has quantified the result of harnessing our desire yeah it's crazy so back to storytelling i think this is really interesting i mean because that's what you and i've spent our careers doing now we're trying to storytell around sustainability but we both started out doing something else Mm. and this industry does it's based on selling you a dream to get you to buy stuff. It still is, even if I work in another part of it. That's just what it's all about. Magazines sell you shoes and handbags. They sell you them by the dream of the celebrity on the cover, by the stories about the brands inside, by the amazing fashion shoots. Advertisers pay for the magazines. That's just how it all works. Mm. And it's not just magazines. You can extend that through everything, even into things that don't seem to be directly ads, but still are like Hollywood films. 100%. It's just a big industry of desire creation, desire for physical product. Yeah, we call it architects of desire in the playbook because that is fundamentally what... I mean, the whole industry, it's a marketing industry. So I guess we need to shift what they're selling, that desire, away from physical commodities and into more sustainable lifestyles and dot, 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 I don't know. That's back to this cultural power of the fashion industry through storytelling. What would Rachel Arthur's dream be for the future of our industry? This is personal, not the UN EP's vision. Yeah, no, it's fair enough. And I think you told me you were going to ask me this question in advance. And I've spent a really long time thinking about it. And I think it's a really hard one to answer. So I'm going to answer you in two ways. First of all, my personal one. And this probably comes a lot with my interest in topics around things like degrowth. But it is about fashion being more tied up with value. And when I say that, it's about us obviously treasuring things that we own and ensuring that they do last for longer so that we don't just chuck them out. And the way I, you know, for me, a lot of this isn't just about a dream, which I think is really interesting when you talk to a lot of sustainability professionals that we are trying to introduce this in our daily lives. You know, it's not just saying this is some far off reality in 2030. It's about how am I trying to think about shopping right now? So it is about being local and community-based, focusing a lot on repairs. I love the amazing women in the repair shop in the market just around the corner from me in South London. It's about sharing things, passing things around, do that with my kids all of the time. It's so easy to do, but it needs to be easier. 
certainly for, for grown women, there's a lot of options that are out there now. I'm lucky I have so much access to it in London. You're a Appreciate. really good renter. I love renting. You rent every, every time I see you on Instagram, you're like, look at this amazing outfit, rented. Yeah, I do. I rent all the time. But it's because I force myself to not buy anything new so I can spend my money in different ways. You know, I appreciate that's not accessible to everybody, but it is accessible if you stop buying so much and spend your time also in different ways. So it's things like that. But well, also, on, spend your time in different ways. See, not just Saturday morning, let's go to the shops. Yeah, which is how we all grew up, right? It was an outing. It's like, oh, let's go to the shopping centre and spend my whole day there with my friends, buying as much as I can with the little bit of money that I've earned on my day my you know actually my Saturday job so I would go after work on Saturday yeah it, that was habit all of us did it but yes if we're not spending our time doing that and we're not spending our money that way it means that we can put it towards something else which you know it probably does come from a place of privilege to be able to do so but it is about thinking around the way that we consume in completely new ways and then also you know and this this I think has to be central about it we've talked about it already in terms of the workers but also around thinking about the craft and the heritage that is inherent in this industry that we take for granted I would love to see that people everywhere in the world understand better what it actually takes to make a garment where it comes from you know the wisdom that is in the innovation that's in the fibres that we wear, but also the nature, you know, and how so much of it comes from nature, not just the negative way that it impacts nature, which is huge, but the fact that, you know, you're wearing something that was once a tree, for instance. You said you didn't want it to be just a dream and that actually it's about the practicality of how we're living and acting today, which I love. But I do want to stick on the dream for a moment because I think that's what fashion media is so good at delivering mm. us. So that's going to be my second answer to you, actually, <laughs> when I said I had two answers. And the, the second one is that this notion of a dream positive narrative is, I think, what's missing. Yeah. It's hugely missing. You know, we need, as I've said already, to bring storytellers and creators into this journey because... What we've got before us, and this is a phrase from the writer and anthropologist Amitav Ghosh, is a crisis of imagination. I love that phrase. And he's talking about it in the sense of like the gaps around us being finding it very hard to imagine what a two degree or a three degree or a four degree world might look like. I want of, to interview him. He's on my list. I read a really oh, good that, book of his the other day. Oh my gosh, that would he's be amazing. So amazing hey? Please get him. <laughs> but we, yeah, say it again because his phrase is so good. A crisis of imagination. Yeah. So we turn that into a positive then. What we need is the imagination of how we're going to get there and what the positive future could look like. And that's the work that we need doing. And I am starting to see versions of that. There are some nice examples. Lots of them are sort of written in reports. <laughs> so we need the storytellers to take it out of those sort of very academic places and create it in ways that are, as we said, engaging, but immersive and exciting as well. And that's what fashion is so good at. They make us not only dream, but fall in love. And I think that notion of like, desire needs to point us to sustainable lifestyles and to that awful phrase but a used phrase in this context of a 1.5 degree lifestyle do you want to unpack that because i'm not sure all listeners would be familiar with that it's only new to me i mean it may you can intimate what it means by what it says but what does it specifically mean yeah so this was a really big part of the initial work that went into creating this playbook. For me, I've spent so long trying to analyze exactly what this is, what out, what's out there already defining it and how, how we could then interpret it. We're talking about a lifestyle that is in line with us achieving collectively worldwide a limit to the global average temperature rise of 1.5 degrees. So that in of itself is a really complicated sentence because what actually does that even then mean and look like it's that intangible thing that I mentioned before. But we can define a sustainable lifestyle, if we, if we call it that instead of a 1.5 degree lifestyle, as something that meets basic needs, enables us to live well while embracing the idea of sufficiency. Again, really hard to actually understand, right? But also it involves us making, I want to say sacrifices, realising that we can't keep doing what we're already doing. It's not going to be enough. And then, and I want to also flag, there's all this pressure historically that's been put on the consumer since the 90s to reduce their footprint because somehow it's down to them when we know that it's down to 100 
biggest companies that are the biggest emitters. It's not just down to whether I walked here or whether I drove here. So there's this messy place that we have to find balance with, which is we're going to make sacrifices. We can't keep carrying on as normal. It's not all our fault. It's all actually much bigger impact when it comes to companies. But then also kind of is our fault if we're in the West and we're affluent because Mm. there are so, so huge sections of humanity who are not contributing as we are to this horrible carbon emission story. Yeah. And that's really important to you know, to put that into the context of what does a 1.5 degree lifestyle mean? The reason it's so hard to define is because it's different for different markets and also for different income groups within those markets. So for some, it means, you know, adjusting our lifestyles and reducing consumption. Absolutely. But for others, it does also mean still they can increase it and they need to increase it, you know, just to get to basic needs perspective. There was a really good report by the Hot or Cool Institute, which I'd mm. never heard of till I read the report. Mm. What's it called? Do you remember? I can't remember. Uh, unfit, unfair, unfashionable. Yes. Yes. Which really did a good job of drilling down on this. It was really good. Fundamentally, what it said was that in the G20 countries, on average, we need to reduce fashion consumption by 60%. Hmm. 60%. Um, in, the, in the high income of the G20 yeah, yeah. countries, sorry. That's important. So if you take Australia which was the highest example of per capita oh, consumption of we fashion. So Australia needs to reduce by 74%. <gasps> India, they need to increase. If you look in the UK, uh, top 20% of earners, which by the way, if you live in London, probably is the majority, need to reduce their footprint by 83%. It's huge. We're going to have to do something about it, but the industry doesn't want to do something about it. I want to talk about degrowth. How does the playbook talk about overconsumption. Interesting, when it was released, there were headlines that jumped on this aspect of it. Business of Fashion ran one that said, the United Nations to fashion, stop pushing overconsumption. And the word pushing is the distinction there, and I think is quite interesting, because what we're saying is that the role of the communicator, marketers, as we've discussed, are responsible for making us want to buy more and more and more we are pushing this notion of like material wealth is status that you know having volume of product disposability etc is normal acceptable etc so we talk about this idea of what we call as one of the key principles is eight of them and one of the key ones definitely the punchiest one is eradicating messages of overconsumption is super convoluted and we unpack it in a lot of detail, obviously, within the content of what that looks like. But I guess to give you like a really tangible example, it's things like, why do we need the whole videos of social media influencers? And why do, why should brands be sponsoring and supporting those and just showing sheer volume? Like, it's not okay for the world we live in right now. But I also think it's easy to knock a whole video because it's obviously the worst of the worst. But at the core of this industry the brands want to make more money and produce more stuff they do so we talk about value creation a lot as well and this you know this notion of the systems challenge that is before us and if you look at the communicators role within that the majority of people that work in marketing and i'd love anybody to get in touch with me that is incentivized in a different way but the majority of marketers are kpi'd against driving volume sales and that therefore is the biggest challenge of adopting this playbook is going to be that if they were to take on all of the suggestions that are within it does that fundamentally go against their ability to hit those kpis because they need to push more sales yeah, because the risk is that they will say let's do the greenwashy bit because that's managing our own risk yeah but then let's not do the tricky bit which is stop yeah. pushing over consumption <laughs> yeah and so we talk about the fact that without addressing that, it's almost impossible for this industry, as you've already pointed out, to hit any of the targets that are before us. So that overconsumption side of things fundamentally then comes down to the way that we perceive value, which is where the degrowth conversation comes in, which is to say that if we purely look at this industry through the lens of pushing more and more, growing as fast as we possibly can, KPIing marketers against those, then we're not we're not going to get there. That's not on the marketer individually to be able to solve. However, they are so fundamental to the very notion of value creation outside of the industry, what it is that consumers are asking for, desiring. We hear the argument all the time, consumers don't want it. it you know, that's very chicken and egg. But w- we know that we can also help direct that. That's why aspiration is so important. 
and aligning that to sustainable lifestyles. But also I think there's a really interesting role for the communicator from an advocacy standpoint internally within the organization, which is start calling for better as well and bring this conversation to the table, you know, say, we can't keep measuring ourselves in this in this way. Let's look at value creation in a different sense. These are huge challenges, you know, not sort of putting it out there and saying that this is an easy solve, just, you know, as somebody that works in a comms team, walk up to your CEO and bang, it'll be fixed. But bring it to the table for a conversation because if it's not happening, it needs to be. I think it's interesting, Rachel, that you've spoken to so many people so widely on this. So you've collected so many different insights. Do you think we can change fashion story away from overconsumption and towards a greener, more dreamy, beautiful future? The optimist in me would like to think so. And I suppose then what I would say is like, this is our greatest challenge, right? If we are an industry that is about being architects of desire, we cannot have it any longer that overconsumption is something that is desired in this industry because that doesn't get us to a place that, you know, maintains a sustainable, livable world, let alone obviously safe livelihoods for people in all parts of the world. To me, if we think about aspiration as the idea of luxury, luxury has to be sustainability. And if it's not that, then why on earth would we desire it in the first place? The optimist in me hopes that that is possible, that the industry can grab hold of, and when I say the industry, let me rephrase that, I mean people that work within the industry, and that's an important distinction, I think, that people can feel like empowered and excited about this and say, you know, I I want to take this challenge on. We need to make it happen. Let's make aspirational something that is a 1.5 degree lifestyle. Because we can make that happen. That's that's our jobs is to create that within within people and make them want it. Um, but it is a huge challenge. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. you